0: Presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's word. And this is our 8th and next to the last session in, uh, in our study on what it means to be saved by grace. And today we're talking a little more uh, about the same thing that we did last week, and that is the subject of, uh, of sanctification. And we said the word sanctify means what? Do you remember? Yeah, set aside or to set apart. That's right. And the inference is that we are set apart from something, To something else and in the Bible the idea as far as the Christian is concerned is being set apart from sin to God we've seen uh, throughout this that salvation is strictly uh, by the grace of God through faith in Christ it has nothing to do with our works although as we're going to see even today our works are important after we come to know the Lord because and we're going to see it next week too in our final session uh, I've tentatively entitled that one Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine because we're going to be talking about if, if God's salvation is all of Him and it begins in eternity and goes through time and then back into eternity again, how is it that we can have any sort of assurance as far as our relationship with the Lord is concerned? So that's, that's what we're going to be taking up uh, in our next session. But I want to uh, point you in your outline to our focal passage for this section, which is the second uh, little passage there in that box at the top of the page, where it says in Romans 6, 19, for just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. And we said that really, when you look at the Bible and you look at the concept of sanctification, you discover that sanctification is really in three tenses, although we, we tend to think of it just in, uh, in one. Uh, one. In one sense, uh, there is a what's known, what we could call, I guess, positional sanctification. And, of course, that occurs at the cross. When we come to faith, when God in His grace brings us to faith in Christ, Positionally, we are set apart. We are set apart from our sinfulness because we're justified. We're forgiven of our sins. We're declared righteous. So we're set apart from our sin. We're set apart to God. Positionally, we are sanctified. There is a third sense in which we uh, sanctification is true, and that is in the perfected sense. And of course, that takes place at the very end at the time of the resurrection and that's when we uh we have a new nature right now as christians the very nature of god himself and one day at the time of christ's coming when the resurrection occurs the bible says that all of those who have preceded us those who are alive at that time those who have preceded them in death will be raised, their bodies will be changed, and those who are alive at the time of the coming of Christ, their bodies will be changed in the twinkling of an eye, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, will be changed, will be perfected, we'll have have perfect bodies, perfect spirit, everything will be perfect. But we're not there yet, and we're not going to get there in this life as much as some people like to think that that's true. Mostly what we're talking about when we talk about sanctification is the second use of the word, and that's in terms of progressive sanctification. And that is that we are being changed, that we are being, that yes, we have been set apart through the cross of Christ, but we are progressively being changed from glory to glory, that, that slowly, surely, indelibly, the image of God is being more deeply stamped into each of us who profess, profess His name. So this is the one that we're really going to be talking about today, and we're going to be talking about sanctification as a moral imperative. That is, that there are people who teach, and I think teach wrongly, that you come to Christ as Savior that he becomes your Savior, and then somewhere along the line, somewhere, then it's optional for him to become Lord. But the fact is, you remember the old Philippian jailer when, uh, when Paul and Silas were shackled there in the jail at Philippi, and all of a sudden the earthquake started going, first jailhouse rock ever recorded in the, uh, in the Bible. It started rocking and rolling. Remember, the, the jailer got all upset, came in, fell down at the, at the apostles' feet and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And what was the response of Paul? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. If Jesus is not Lord, then he is not Savior. It, it, there are people who teach that, that lordship, the lordship of Christ is an optional kind of thing. No, it's all in one package. And when, uh, when Jesus brings us, when God brings us to himself effectually and changes us, he changes us inside and we want all of a sudden, whereas previously there's been a desire to go our own way, now there's a desire to go the way of the Lord because he is the one who's in control of our lives. And we're going to, I think, see that as we go through this. I've put, uh, put a little... Uh, repeated the the quotation from Anthony Hokema there in your outline where he defines sanctification and specifically progressive sanctification in these terms. And I quote, that gracious operation of the Holy Spirit involving our responsible participation. Notice, we have a part to play. Do we have any part to play in positional sanctification? The answer is no, we do not. That's something that God alone does. How about in the perfected sanctification? No, again, that's something that God alone does. But we do have a part in progressive sanctification, and that is the Bible says it's God who's at work in you, both to will and to work his good pleasure. Work out your own salvation. So not work for it, but work it out. What God is working in, we are to work out, the Bible says. And I interrupted the quotation. Hokema says, and again I quote, that gracious operation of the Holy Spirit involving our responsible participation by which He, God, the Spirit, delivers us from the pollution of sin, renews our entire nature according to the image of God, and enables us to live lives that are pleasing to Him. And I close the quote. And that's a real important thing because remember before we come to know christ how is man uh and how are humans uh characterized is dead in sin their minds are hostile toward god they don't understand the things of the spirit of god i think what hokuma says is right is that as god is working in us we discover that we are actually able to do things that are pleasing to god whereas before we came to know Christ, clearly, that was not the case. The agent of our sanctification is the Spirit of God. What means does God use? God, you know, God always, God's not opposed to using means. In other words, God has an end, something that He's going to bring us to, and He uses some means to bring us to that end. And what we discover from the Scripture is basically there probably are a number of means we could list. The two primary means are the scriptures. God uses the scriptures and God uses other people. And it's usually the second one that gives us more problems than, uh, than the first. Uh, we talked last week about the, the ways that uh, that we relate to the scriptures. We said we can hear this we can hear the scriptures being preached or taught. We can read the scriptures. We can study the scriptures. We can memorize the scriptures. And then we can meditate on the scriptures. And all those things together are the ways that God, <clears throat> that the scriptures can come into our experience and begin to really work on us on the inside. Notice there's a verse that I put in your outline there. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, where Paul writes, All scripture is God-breathed. And is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man or the person of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We could diagram it this way. Let's see. We'll just uh, we'll just make something that looks kind of like a uh, kind of like a street here, and uh, like this. All right, here's what what Paul says. He says, all Scripture is God-breathed, and it's profitable. It's profitable for what? What's the first thing he mentions? Teaching, okay. Teaching, to show us which way we're supposed to go. So here we are, we're on the path. We're on the path of righteousness. He leads me in paths of righteousness, Psalm 23 says. So we're heading in this direction. But, invariably, do we always walk perfectly before the Lord? The answer is no. Well, when we don't, when you and I take a detour here and get off the path that we're supposed to be on, what's the next thing that Paul mentions after teaching? Rebuking. What, is, what, what does it mean to re, rebuke? Yeah, kind of, kind of a, a correcting sort of thing. Uh, it's kind of like uh, if you rebuke your children, what are you doing? Trying to correct them. To correct them. There's, a, there's kind of a sense in which we feel like we're sort of being fussed at a little bit, but we know that it's all got a, got a good purpose. So, so what happens is we get off the track. The script God uses the scriptures to rebuke us. And what does that do? That puts us back on this track here so that we're moving back in the right direction and what's the next thing that comes along? What does it say? say? Yeah, correcting. So, so rebuking is really pointing out where you made the wrong turn. You say, hey, you, you turned off here. You should have been going straight. So rebuking tells you where you've gone wrong and then correction comes after that. That gets us back on the path again And we move around here, and then comes training in righteousness. So the whole purpose, the reason God gives us his word, it's a means to an end. The the Bible is not an end in itself. When I came to faith years ago, uh, this was the means that God used to bring me to faith. Uh, I was working for a physician, uh, who was a Gideon. He carried around Bibles in all his little pockets and his white coat. And I was always impressed, you know, he, the way he could just quote verses and uh, people would come in and they would have various ailments, but they'd get to talking about other things and he'd, he'd reach in his pocket and he said, well, you know, I was just reading this morning over here in Matthew so-and-so. Jesus said that. I thought, man, alive I'd like to be able to do that. I didn't care about knowing God. Didn't care about uh, having a relationship with Jesus, I just wanted to, I just wanted to be where I could, uh, I could find stuff in the Bible like he did that would apply to things. And as I began to read and study the Bible, all of a sudden, one evening, the Bible took on a whole new meaning because the author himself came to live within me. And I realized that the Bible was not just something just to quote to other people, or to use to prove things to other people, or to use to show people how smart I was, the Bible was something that was good for me that I needed in order to uh, teach me what I should do, to get after me when I got off the right track, to get me back on the right track, and to train me in righteousness so that ultimately my life would be characterized by conformity. To Christ. And that's where we're all headed. Incidentally, I haven't reached this yet. None of us have. But we all should be moving in that direction. Had heard somebody say one time, said, I'd rather be one foot out of hell, moving toward heaven, than to be one foot away from heaven, moving toward hell. And there's a lot of truth in that. But this is the direction in which we're going right here. God also uses other people as well. And I put a passage there from Ephesians 4, and we won't take the time to look at all of it right now because we're going to touch on this here again in a few minutes, but I do want to point out two or three verses in that passage. Verse 2 of Ephesians 4 says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Verse 3 says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit, through the bond of peace. And he goes on to say that God has provided apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. To what end? Well, he tells us there in verse 12, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith. Notice, not uniformity. Uniformity says we all look alike, we talk alike, we sound alike, we view everything exactly the same way. He didn't say uniformity. He said, until we reach the unity, We're, we're one, unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature. What does it mean to be mature? Verse 14, we'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. There are always people who come along with with some sort of new revelation. And some of these people, apparently in Ephesus, kind of fell into that trap. And Paul says, hey, you need to grow up. You need to develop your discernment so that won't happen to you. But you and I, as believers, are responsible for actively participating in this process. In other words, all of this stuff that we're talking about here, the the... The means that God uses his word, the means that he uses other people in our lives, it, it doesn't work if we just stick the Bible under the pillow at night and sleep on it and say, mm, I'm gonna get it through osmosis. And it doesn't work if we just uh, watch it on television and see how other people do it and say, mm, yeah, I can relate to that. No, there has to be some kind of give and take Paul says in 2nd Corinthians chapter 7 verse 1 since we have these promises and he's talking about all the things he's been talking about previous to that in 2nd Corinthians what God has done for us in Christ since we have these promises dear friends let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit perfecting holiness out of reverence for God and remember that word in the Bible that's translated perfection, when we, when we read perfection or, or one of its cognates like perfection, it means to bring to completion. So don't get the idea that you're going to get perfect in this life. You're not. But we're moving toward completion. Completion of what? We're moving toward conformity to Christ. That's what sanctification is, uh, is really all about. Uh, so I want us to look first of all at, uh, at the relationship of the Word of God. We said basically there are two major means that God uses, the scriptures and other people. And so we want to look first of all at the means of the scriptures. We want to talk, think together about our own relationship uh, to the Word of God. Uh, you'll notice in your outline that I've, uh, that in that section right there that I've put uh, words or phrases in bold print, and they all come out of Romans chapter six. And those words, first one is no. The second one is to count or consider, depends on which uh, uh, translation that you read which version you read and the third one is what yield or or present right that idea okay now knowing has to do with our cognitions what is what is cognition where does where does cognition occur right here. right in the mind that's right When we're talking about counting and considering things, it's related to cognition, but it's related even more so to faith. We're going to see that here in a minute. And then when we're talking about yielding and presenting the members of our body as instruments of of righteousness to God, we're talking about our behavior, what we do. Now, let's see how all of that links together. I think probably one of the things that would be helpful To sort of get the stream of thought is just to read those three passages that are there in that small print from romans 6 under each one of those bold titles paul writes in romans 6 verse 6 for we know now we need to ask ourselves is this something that i know paul said he knew this for we know that our old self the the person that we were before we came to know christ we know that our old self was crucified with him. Who's the him? Jesus. So that the body of sin might be done away with. Now, the word done away with, most of the time when we read something like that, we say, whoa, that just means it's going to be discarded. In the Bible, this term done away with means to be rendered powerless. So we can read it this way, and it's accurate. For we know that our old self, what we were, was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be rendered powerless that we should no longer be slaves to sin in verse 11 in the same way count yourselves dead to sin but alive to god in christ jesus verses 12 and 13. do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. Now what is Paul talking about when he says all of this? Well, I think it can be summarized in in these three things that we're talking about here. Knowing, considering what it is that we know to really be true in our own personal experience and then on the basis of what we are convinced of by faith that it's true, then that should make a difference in our behavior, knowing. And I think what he's talking about here is he's talking about seeing ourselves the way that God sees us. What is it that the Bible says about the believer in Christ? Now, you and I, you may have problems with this. I know people who have problems with it because I see them every week but they're just people christians included who just seemed overwhelmed with guilt you ever met anybody like that i mean i remember seeing a ziggy cartoon one time and in the ziggy cartoons when when he's at the counselor it's sort of a psychoanalytic situation because remember ziggy kind of lies on the couch and the analyst sits over in an area where ziggy can't see him with a little with a little notepad in his hand and in this particular cartoon that I'm thinking about, Ziggy said, you know, uh, he's talking about an inferiority complex, and the analyst says this to him. I've got good news for you. You don't have an inferiority complex. You really are inferior. And there are a lot of people who just feel that way. They just feel guilty, and yet what does the Bible say about us as Christians? What does it say? Yeah, yeah. it it says that we have been forgiven of our sin. It says that in Christ we've been forgiven. So there's some things that we need to know. We need to come to grips with what is it that the Bible says about me. Now, one of the best ways to do that is to read through the New Testament, particularly the letters of... The Gospels are good. The letters, I think, in this particular instance are perhaps a little better to reach this conclusion. And look for things like this, where it says, In Christ, in Him, and in whom? And see, what, what is it that the Bible says is true about me because I'm in Christ? What is it that the Bible says is true about me because I'm in Him, in Jesus Christ? What is it that the Bible is saying is true about me because in him this is what God has wrought? For example, and I've, and I've put a couple of examples in, the, uh, in your notes there. For example, the one from Romans chapter 8, verses uh, 35 and following. Now that's not in your notes, but let me just turn to it in my Bible real quickly and I'll just read you just a little bit of it. And all of you are going to remember this as soon as I start reading it. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? In all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, what does that passage say? A, what is it says, what is it that can separate us from God's love in Christ? Nothing, nothing. Now, there are people that I see, there are people that you run into sometime, and perhaps you have the problem at times yourself. You say, well, somehow I just don't really feel loved. I don't, I don't sense the love of Christ. Well, that's fine, but how well... Can we live on the basis of our feelings? I mean, when you get up early in the morning, do you always jump up and say, Ooh, I feel married this morning. Well, you may not feel married, but does that change the fact that you are married? No. It We're still married whether we feel married or not. Uh, and so the point I'm making is that there's some things that we know. We, we need to look at the Scriptures. What is it that the Scripture says? This, well, the Scripture says that nothing can separate God's people from his love. Nothing can. I, even I can't separate myself from the love that God has for me. And another example is Colossians 1.14, which says, in whom, referring to Christ, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so we run into all these people who just say, oh, I just feel so guilty. I feel so guilty. Well... Maybe that's because they are guilty, you always need to explore that, but maybe it's more than that. Maybe they've grown up with the idea that the only way to, uh, to get along is to motivate people by using guilt tactics to, uh, to get them to do things, and yet when we read the Bible, what is something else that we should know? We should know that all of our sins, if we are truly in Christ, if we belong to Him, what's happened to our sins? They've been put away. They've been dealt with fully. We need to ask ourselves, is that something that I really know? Now, having concluded, and, by, and, and Paul writes in, in Romans, let God be true and every man a liar. In other words, when we read the Scriptures, We say all these things that the Bible says about Christ, uh, about my relationship to Christ, those things are true of all of the people of God. Now, what do I need to do? Well, the second thing I need to do, and again, this is part of the means that God uses, uh, means of his word, I have to begin to believe that those things are true. I have to count that or consider that as true not only that God has forgiven His people, but if I am one of God's people, what does that mean? That God's forgiven me. That God has really forgiven me. Not only that in, in, in Christ that God, that none of God's people can ever get away from the love that He has for Him in Christ, for them in Christ, but what's true of all of God's people generally is specifically true of me as well. And I consider that. Remember what, uh, remember this, these words showed up there in Genesis chapter 15 where oh, God took Abraham outside and said, Abe, look up there in the sky. He said, Count all those stars up there. And I'm sure he thought, Man, live! I don't know that many numbers. He said, your descendants are going to be just like those stars up there. And the Bible says there in Genesis 15, I think it's verse 6, it says, and Abram believed God. And what did God do? God counted it to him as righteousness. We need to count or consider that what God has said in his word is true in our own personal experience as well. This is where, uh, last week we talked a little bit about meditation in the scriptures, and we talked about it's, it's akin to a, a, a cow chewing its cud, you know, going over it. I want you to look on the very last page of your notes for a moment. This is a quote that I lifted directly out of um, J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, and I have given him full credit for it on this page and I don't want to read all of the quote, but I do want to read part of it. Uh, How can we turn our knowledge about God into knowledge of God? The rule for doing this is simple but demanding. It is that we turn each truth that we learn about God into into a matter for meditation before God, leading to prayer and praise to God. Third paragraph. Meditation is the activity of calling to mind and thinking over and dwelling on and applying to oneself the various things that one knows about the works and ways and purposes and promises of God. It's an activity of holy thought, consciously performed in the presence of God, under the eye of God, by the help of God, as a means of communion with God. Its purpose is to clear one's mental and spiritual vision of God and to let His truth make its full and proper impact on one's mind and heart. And here's the important thing, I think. It is a matter of talking to oneself about God and oneself. It is indeed often a matter of arguing with oneself, reasoning oneself out of moods of doubt and unbelief into a clear apprehension of God's power and grace. That's what I'm talking about. When we're talking about counting it to be true, we're talking about not only just knowing, saying, Yeah, yeah, I bl- oh, yeah, I believe. If it, if it said that, the, that Jonah swallowed the whale, I'd believe that because it's in the Bible. Well, it doesn't say that. It says that the whale swallowed Jonah, or the great fish swallowed Jonah. But it's more than that, it's personalizing that in our own life and saying, Yes. All this stuff that the Bible says about my relationship with God, the security that I have in Christ, the forgiveness that I have in Him, all of these things that bug me so much, yes, that I can personalize those, that they are true in my own experience. And we begin to verbalize those things. And notice I put some examples again there in your notes. Uh, for example, uh, the, the, the guilt-ridden Christian. Romans 8.1 is a good verse. Romans 8.1 says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Well, now if that's true then I need to believe that and personalize that and say this because I am in Christ what? Because I'm in Christ I am not under condemnation and you see that helps us deal with all this guilt and stuff that tends to uh, go on if we're in that helpless hopeless kind of mood because i'm in christ i am a new creation the old things have passed away the new things are uh everything's becoming new but that's not enough to stop there not just giving it lip service Our behaviors need to change as well, and that's the moral imperative. Paul writes that we are to yield, we're to offer the parts of our body not to sin, but offer ourselves to God as those alive from the dead. Now, and what we're talking about here is we're talking about practicing the truth. Now, the thing that we have to be careful about when we talk about practicing the truth is that we all know that old cliche that practice makes perfect. perfect. Let me tell you, that's a lie. Because you can practice all your life long yielding your members as instruments of righteousness to God, and you will never become perfect. And those of us who grew up in sort of perfectionist kinds of backgrounds we have that kind of mindset, and it's uh, one of the things that we discover is that as we begin to yield ourselves to God, we discover that there is conflict that is constantly going on, and there's an easy, ex- relatively easy explanation for all of that, and and a lot of it goes back to to our cognitions, the things that we've learned. In other words, it's like this: the mind, our minds is kind of like an iceberg. This thing that looks like a mountain here is really a, really an iceberg. And this is the water line here. And here above the water line are the things that we're aware of a lot. These, this is where our ideas and our thoughts, uh, our perceptions all take place. But under the water line is not so much what's unconscious there, Actually, what's going on under here are our basic assumptions. These are the things that we have learned in life. Uh, Basic assumptions like practice makes perfect. Well, where does it say that in the Bible? You never find that in the Bible at all. And so what happens is when we begin to uh, utilize the scriptures... And begin to look at the scriptures and say, now what really is true of me? Then we begin to deal with these basic assumptions, and as we deal with these, then these things above the waterline, our ideas, our thoughts, and our perceptions, begin to change. And it doesn't happen overnight, but it really does begin to happen. But going back here to behaviors, As we begin to change we discover that there is conflict and this conflict occurs because now we've got the nature of God dwelling in us and yet there's a there's a lot of the old flesh that's down here and our old uh, habits our old uh, strategies for doing things and uh, when you're used to doing things a certain way How easy is it to change? It's difficult to change. Is it impossible to change? The answer is no, it's not. But what happens is some of us, uh, particularly those of us who came to faith sort of late, you know, we've developed all sorts of habits, all kind of strategies for dealing with life. And we could, you know, if God will just stay out of things, we can make stuff work. We've done that for years and years. And so what happens is all of a sudden God invades our life He's going to change our life and conform us to the image of His Son. And these old strategies of ours begin bumping heads with the new way of doing things. And so there's conflict. But that's good because what God's going to do is He's going to change our strategies. Because, our, for example, our strategy in the past may have been just to simply make demands. We just demand that it be this way. And God says, that's not a good strategy says a better strategy is to delight. Delight yourself in the Lord. And what does he do, the scriptures say? Yeah, he brings it to pass. He gives you the desires of your heart. He does does what you long for so much in your heart. And what is that? To change you into the image of his son. But God doesn't stop there. God doesn't stop just by using uh, his word. God also uses other people. (laughs) And on the third page of your notes, uh, in the time we have left, I want to point out just a couple of things. We can't look at all of it, but we can look at some of it. It's really important, I think, to develop a biblical perception of, uh, of relationships when it, comes to, uh, when it comes to our walk with the Lord. Most of us can quote Romans 8, 28. For we know that all that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And certainly our relationships with other people could be included in those all things. You say, well, God must not know the folks that I do because there is no way that this can possibly work for my good. And yet you look at example after example from the scriptures and you discover how God uses other people to change us i put two or three in your notes there one of them is joseph and his brothers what uh, what happened to joseph you remember sold into slavery by whom yeah by 10 older brothers the only brother that wasn't involved was his y- younger brother uh whose name was benjamin and through an interesting chain of events uh joseph finally uh, although he sold into slavery some 13 years later, finds himself promoted to prime minister or chief operations officer over all of Egypt. And it's just a marvelous story the way it works. And within a few years, about nine years after that promotion, these brothers wind up in Egypt because a famine has struck all that part of the world. And the only place where you can buy grain is in Egypt. And Joseph recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. And there's an interesting interchange that goes on. And to make a long story short, finally there's a reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers. Now we're talking about, See, he was 17 years old when he was sold into slavery. He was in slavery for 13 years. And then it was nine years later, seven good years. And then the second year into the famine, so we've got uh, 17 and 13 is, uh, is 30, 39. So you're looking at uh, Joseph around uh, 39 to 40 years old when this happens. And notice in Genesis chapter 45, verses 5 through 8, he's talking to his brothers, and he says, And now, do not be grieved or angry with yourself. Don't be angry with yourself. Good grief, Joseph, why aren't you angry with them? Don't be grieved or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. Notice, he doesn't make any bones about it. He doesn't say, you made a mistake. He said, no, you sold me here. But notice his perspective. For God sent me before you to preserve life. And he, God, has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. What happened to Joseph's perspective? What happened to his perspective during all these years? Yeah, it changed. And all of a sudden, Joseph saw things differently. He didn't have that limited view of things. His view expanded. And he realized, yeah, God's in control of all of this. And God even used other people, and particularly blood brothers of his, to bring about this change of perspective to do a marvelous work in his life. There's another illustration that I've got there from 2 Samuel verse 15, uh, chapter 15 where you remember uh, David's uh, favorite son, Absalom, uh, attempted a coup d'etat against his father and, and David, had to, David and the loyalists had to flee from Jerusalem because Absalom and the troops were going to kill them all. And as they were leaving Jerusalem, headed down for the Jordan River to flee over the the Jordan into the the eastern side, uh, David looked back and he noticed that the priests had picked up the Ark of God. They were going to carry that with them. They weren't going to leave it there for Absalom to have. And notice what David says. It says, uh, 2 Samuel 15, verses 24 and following, Now behold, Zadok, he was one of the priests, Zadok also came and all the Levites with him carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. And the king said to Zadok, Return the Ark of God to the city. If I find favor in the sight of the Lord, then he will bring me back again and show me both it and his habitation. But if he should say thus, I have no delight in you, behold, here I am. Let him, God, do to me as seems good to him. What sort of perspective do you see here that David has? I mean, here his own flesh and blood, his own son is trying to cut his throat. And yet, in spite of all of this, David recognizes that God is using these other people to change things in his life. And while God, while David doesn't necessarily trust Absalom, who does David trust? He trusts God in all of this. And he says, look, if God's pleased to bring me back that's fine. If he doesn't, that's fine. This is all God's business, and I didn't put the I put the references, but not the verses there. Uh, the Christian community is analogous to a temple. It's also analogous to a human body, and the whole idea in the human body is that you and I are have differences about us. Uh, there is to be unity and yet diversity within that unity and all of that is with a view to being interdependent that is we're not to be we're so determined to be independent of other people say so I don't want to have to ask anybody to help me do anything I want to be on my own god says no i intend for you to be interdependent you're depending on me but god says but i'm going to use other people in order to accomplish my purposes and that's what we see going on right here i guess we could summarize and i've done that at the uh at the conclusion of that third page uh we could we could summarize sanctification as the moral imperative this way and i'll just read what i've written here because the believer is in union with christ has been given a new nature has been forgiven for all sin has been delivered from the wrath of God and has been assured of a new destiny, he or she has an obligation to live for God and His glory. The moral imperative. Am I seeking to know what it is the Bible says about me? Do I really believe that that's true? And having come to grips with that, am I seeking to yield myself, to present myself as an instrument to God for Him to use for His glory. God help us to see that. Next week, we're going to conclude our study with with a look at assurance of salvation. And I believe we can really learn some wonderful things there. Father, thank you again for your kindness and mercy, your grace and your goodness, how great your salvation is. Thank you, Lord, that you planned this all before you put the first star into space. And Lord, thank you that the things that you require of us, the moral imperative that's on us. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax deductible. For a free copy of our monthly newsletter, Glimpses of Truth, or other information about the ministry, write to Focus on Truth. Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.